Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. Great to be with you. Today's topic is six radical invitations in our polarized, politicized world. This is part one. So let me invite you again uh, to send any kind of comments or questions, uh, any kind of feedback you can give back to me uh, around the podcast. Uh, just go to askpete at emotionallyhealthy.org. And it's just so helpful to me. It's a real gift uh, to have a sense of community as I'm doing this podcast with people like yourselves all around the world. I also want to invite you to this unique opportunity that's happening uh, in just two, three weeks from now on October 22nd. It's an online event that we call the Emotionally Healthy Leadership One Day Live Stream Experience. And it's a chance for you and your team to get a fresh vision for discipleship and leadership development uh, around a four-hour workshop uh, and really get into what does this look like practically to do emotionally healthy discipleship in my church or community. Just go to emotionallyhealthy.org to register and get some more information. Now, we are in the midst of a great polarization here in the United States. Uh, it's very extreme and intense. It's unprecedented, at least in my generation. Uh, and we see this polarization happening actually around the world uh, in many places as well. But what's really sad uh, is that it's now entered uh, into our churches and where we've got folks split and polarized uh, in the church, uh, just like they are polarized and unable to speak to each other outside the church. And that's a great tragedy. And everyone is speaking as from God, whether they're on the right or the left, with great zeal. And so uh, I want to address that here in this podcast for the next, uh, this part, Six Radical Invitations for Our Polarized, Politicized World. And it's going to probably be a two or three part series. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'm on, I'm in it myself, just on a personal level with my own extended family, uh, folks with very strong views, uh, and I'm observing it and participating in it on a pastoral church level as I speak to pastors all around, uh, the country and the world. And I'm deeply concerned about being grounded theologically, uh, that we're grounded theologically and not swept up in the intensity going on around us. And thus the title of this uh, podcast now, we as pastors and leaders and uh, shepherds and uh, those in any kind of leadership, we, we are, we're leading in the name of Jesus. And, and uh, as Jesus said, feed my sheep. And that can go for a, a mom at home or a dad at home. And we just, we're feeding sheep, uh, leading them to green pastures and keeping them away from danger. Uh, and that's why James 3 is so clear that, you know, being in, in leadership or influence, uh, not many of you should presume to be teachers because you know those who teach will be judged more strictly. And so uh, this podcast in particular, particular has taken me, you know, many, many, many weeks, uh, if not months, to ponder uh, because it really can be quite confusing in, out, out there today. And uh, and so it, I actually, however, see it as a great opportunity for us to mature and, and grow in wisdom. And so I want to offer you really a few thoughts and pondering from Scripture that I trust will help you as they've helped me uh, kind of navigate these difficult times that we're, we're living in. But before I, I get into the six invitations and start going through them, I just want to mention two things uh, to keep in mind. The first has to do with a statement Jesus made uh, in Matthew 16. He says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then when you see the same scripture in Mark, he says, and beware of the yeast of the Herodians as well. And uh, and so even in Jesus' day, there was there was polarization. There was a lot of tension. 
And so you had the Sadducees on one end, uh, who they only believed the first five books of Moses. These were the these were the chief priests, the leading aristocrats, a very wealthy, very powerful, very influential. They were based in Jerusalem, and they controlled the temple. Uh, and uh, all the priests and the teachers of the law were under them. They 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 represented mainline official Judaism, and that uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection, for example. And they really clashed with the Pharisees. Um, the Pharisees were really a, a very zealous, popular renewal movement. Then uh, they, they were seeking to purify Israel from all the contamination of the Romans and the Greeks and all the pagan influences. And they wanted to cleanse God's people uh, so that the Messiah could return. And, uh, you know, and they had a theology that, of course, was very strict, very perfectionistic, and uh, they really clashed with Jesus. And then you had the Herodians. These were uh, these, these were Jewish believers that were basically in, in, involved in, in the political party of Herod, uh, and, and uh, they were involved politically uh, with Herod, and uh, Jesus, beware of them too. And so, so again, there, there was a yeast, and what yeast does is yeast gets into the dough and, 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 and corrupts it, and that's why a little leaven wrecks the whole loaf is the saying, because that, that's a metaphor for corruption. And so, is it any wonder that the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Herodians all joined together to plot to kill Jesus. Um, uh, but Jesus said, we're to beware of that kind of corruption. Now, it's interesting. I could add three other groups uh, of Jews that were floating around at the same time in that first century. You had the Zealots, uh, who actually were, were believers who believed in the power of the sword. They wanted to overthrow the Romans. And they believed it was God's will to, for violence. And then you had the Essenes, who were living in the desert, uh, who had left kind of regular society to kind of live almost like monks, we would call it. And they were they were living in the desert to purify themselves. And they were ascetics. Uh, they believed in ritual purity. They refused to own slaves. They, they shared their property and all their meals together. And some scholars believe John the Baptist may have been an Essene. Uh, so you had that group over there. And then you had folks like Matthew, the tax collector, who had compromised, you know, with the Romans. He had completely assimilated himself out of a desire to make money. So if you're wondering why, my gosh, there's so much going on around me. What, I don't know where to go here, what to believe. Well, uh, be encouraged. That was going on in the days of Jesus as well. And here was Jesus, you know, preaching the kingdom of God. And he's the one that we're after here today as we seek to, to navigate, you know, how do we function in these polarized, politicized uh, environments in which we find ourselves. But at the core of all of, of, of this yeast was unbelief, Uh and it's similar. It's a similar issue for us today as we talk about the six invitations, because Jesus is enough. Jesus Himself uh, is is like He, the resurrection of Him. He is He is more than enough for us, and that's why we're filled with hope about the future as well as the present. And after the feedings of the four thousand and the five thousand, for example, we see the Pharisees and Sadducees demanding a sign from Jesus, and Jesus says, "No, no, there's only one sign. It's the resurrection that I'm alive, the crucified one, risen." And uh, when they're in the boat with Jesus, the 12 disciples, they start arguing about bread. And, and uh, Jesus says, you don't get it, guys. I'm in the boat with you. Uh, everything you need. And uh, so we follow the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus. So we want to beware of yeast as we go through these six invitations and as we're looking around us. But then sec- a second really key scripture for us and as we, uh, is found in Matthew 27, where Jesus is before Pilate and uh, you know, he's being condemned to death. And Pilate says, do you want Jesus Barabbas or Jesus of Nazareth to be set free? And he asked the crowds that. 
Now, Barabbas, or actually his name is Jesus Barabbas in Matthew 27. Uh, he's another prisoner. He's, he's a popular prisoner. He's, a, he's admired because he's not afraid to use force against Rome. He's a patriot. Uh, he's a nationalist, a revolutionary, and he believes in the power of the knife. Uh, and then you got Jesus of Nazareth. And here's Jesus. He's nonviolent. He's seemingly a passive waiter on the kingdom of God. He's, he's a quiet man, apparently. He's making no reply to a single charge made against him on his trial. And he believes in the in the power of angels. It's like he's a dreamer. Uh, but at least Barabbas is a, Jesus Barabbas is a realist. Uh, but the question is, who holds the greatest promise for Israel's future against hated Rome? Uh, who's going to bring results? Now, Jesus Barabbas seemed a more realistic hope for Israel's future than the preacher of angel power and nonviolence against this pagan, terrible, horrific Roman Empire, Babylon. And, and so the, the great contribution of this Barabbas story is that a trial for the church in every generation is which Jesus do we choose? Jesus Barabbas, who's going to make it happen, or this Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one? And I love when Pilate, Pilate asks, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And, and, and they answered, Barabbas. And Pilate says, well, what should I do with Jesus, who's called Messiah? And they all answered, crucify him. And they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Now, history tells us that the tendency of us as God's people is to choose violent solutions and violent leaders rather than follow Jesus' weak, slow, nonviolent, crucified way. So, yeast, Jesus of Nazareth. So here's, let's launch into with that, the six radical invitations. Now these, these have helped me and they are helping me remain grounded and anchored in a world uh, and a church that right now is being tossed and driven by fear and anxiety. Now this is not, of course, the whole picture, but it's my small contribution to you personally and hopefully to help you serve those that you're leading. First invitation from God. One, surrender everything. Surrender everything. Really coming out of Mary, the mother of Jesus, Luke chapter one, uh, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have willed. Uh, Mary surrenders her will totally so that the word Jesus might be birthed in and through her to the world. Now she's losing a lot, her reputation, parents, friends, marriage, her whole life's going a whole new direction. But, but she's the core of her surrender is she gives up everything. She's thy will be done. And uh, she allows God to interrupt her life. God's interrupting all of us right now. Now God has one goal for human history, and that is uh, a people that would live in loving union with him. God wants to marry us in the world, and his, the goal of our existence is to be one with him. The problem with most of us, we're, 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 we're controlling. We like to control. We're control freaks, I, and I, I want the world to unfold a certain way in front of me. Uh, and, uh, and the world needs to unfold in a certain way if I'm going to feel good about it. So we resist anything that we see as negative, and we cling to the things that we we love and we believe we must have and need. And so the problem is if you're if we're clinging and resisting anything, uh, we're not surrendered completely. Uh, and, and so what happens is my spiritual practices 
are to get what I want and to not get what I don't want. And so we even do our devotions and church and serving with an outcome in mind. We want something. But God's invitation is surrender everything. And if we don't surrender, what happens is we end up going against God and, and, and the universe. And now I was with a pastor uh, about two, three years ago. He's from Syria and he'd flown into New York. He, he pastored a church in Damascus and he was right, it was right in the middle of a civil war uh, going on there. Maybe it was three or four years ago, but no, I think it was, anyway, he, um, and I remember I, I asked him, I said, well, how's it going? And, uh, and I said, what are you doing? Like, how, how are you handling it, handling it politically? And he says, well, on the one side, I've got ISIS and Al-Qaeda and all the foreign fighters uh, tearing up the country. On the other side, I've got Assad. And uh, he goes, well, let's not go down that road. And in the middle is me and our church and our pastoring. And he just, he, he, was, he was in a good place of contentment and, and seeking to be faithful, to pastor his sheep and, and be salt and light in Damascus in the middle of that civil war. And I was involved with a, a person uh, who was really involved with the churches in northern Iraq uh, near Kurdistan during a time that ISIS was overrunning northern Iraq and Syria and the plains of Nineveh and really wiping out monasteries and churches. Uh, and they were fleeing for their lives. And again, the same thing it was so interesting just to get a sense of perspective of what it means to surrender everything in those kinds of conditions. It kind of helps give perspective for me of, yes, we're, we're in the middle of turmoil here, but uh, the church through history has been through much greater turmoil. And even not just through history, the church in our day in different places around the world. <clears throat> so when I talk about surrendering everything, I'm referring to abiding in an openness to what's unfolding uh, around us, trusting that God is being born in our souls in the midst of it. And and we're basically, we're, we're open to experiences that are coming to us and we're not clinging or resisting. We're, we're, we're kind of accepting reality of what is. And we're open to how God is coming in and through us. In other words, we're, we're surrendering to the, what I'll call the dark ways of God. You know, Psalm 18 refers to God made darkness his covering. God is just so much bigger than us. And uh, so often we have images of God that are just not consistent with the revelation of who God is in scripture. And so part of the spirituality and maturing in spirituality is we withdraw our projections of who we think he is, our illusions uh, that we have about God, and we're growing and maturing into who he really is. And that requires going into what is often known in church history as the dark ways of God. God's ways are way bigger than you can ever imagine, way higher than I could ever imagine. And just think of the 12 disciples, what their initial understanding was of Jesus, uh, and then as it unfolded over time, and who they understood once, you know, once he resurrected and his time passed, who they understood him to be. I mean, Judas quit along the way because he didn't like this unveiling of the true and living God through Jesus that included something as horrific as a crucifixion. I mean, think of Israel in the wilderness being called out of Egypt and that unfolding journey of 40 years uh, as they got more and more revelation of, of the God of Israel. I mean, think of Moses, his own life and his own journey of revelation as a fascinating study. But one of the main points of scripture and, and is that our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, he can't be controlled. You can't manipulate him. You can't 
predict him or pin him down. He's unfathomable. He, he doesn't work for you. He doesn't work for me. Uh, and he's not like any finite, limited thing that around us. He, he is good. God is love. God is, is faithful. But and God is our Father. But there, those words are even just so inadequate for the largeness and inexhaustibility of who he is. That's why Augustine wrote, and he was a great believer, of course, in Scripture, if you understand, it's not God you understand. He's bigger than that. So when we talk about surrender, uh, everything, you want to you know, just take a deep breath. I mean, everything you hold with an open hand, everything that's, you know, what's, what's happening around us. Well, the first invitation from God is that you, that you just, and me, we, we surrender everything to him because most of the time we have no idea what God is doing. And sometimes what appears to be a blessing and a success often turns out to be a terrible thing. And what appears to be a terrible event often turns out to be a rich blessing. One of my favorite stories, uh, it's actually found in the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality book, uh, is an ancient story from China. And uh, I love this story because it captures our uh, the, the invitation to surrender to God and not try to put what God is doing in our small little box of what we can understand. And it's an old story about a wise man living on one of China's vast frontiers. And one day, for no apparent reason, a young man's horse ran away, uh, was taken by his son's horse, was taken by uh, nomads across the border. Everyone tried to offer consolation for the father's bad fortune to the son's you know, father, his son's horse had been taken away. And the father said, what makes you so sure this is not a blessing? And months later, the horse returns and bringing with her a, a magnificent stallion. And this time everyone's congratulating the father for the son's good fortune. But the father says, what makes you think this, what makes you so sure this isn't a disaster? And their household was made far richer by this fine horse that the son loved to ride. But one day the son fell off the horse and broke his hip. Once again, everyone offered their consolation for his bad luck. But the father said, what makes you so sure this is not a blessing? A year later, these nomads from across the frontier invaded, and every able-bodied man was required to take up his bow and go into battle. The Chinese families living on the border lost nine of every ten men. Only because the son was lame did the father and son survive to take care of each other. And so the, the, the lesson was this. What appeared like a blessing and success has often turned out to be a terrible thing. And what appeared to be a terrible event often turned out to be a rich blessing. Uh, that's why Ignatius of Loyola, who was the great, probably the greatest writer on discerning God's will in the 1500s, he, he says the very starting point of, of when you ask God for guidance about what to do, he says, it must start with complete openness to God and his will. In other words, he used the word indifferent. In other words, I'm open to whatever God wants to do. And he says, if you're, if you're not completely open to whatever God wants to do and you're asking him for counsel and advice, because you're really not asking him for advice, you're basically, you've already got an agenda and you're telling him what you want to do and you're hoping he just blesses it. Fantastic insight there. Just again, complete surrender. So What's happening around us right now in this polarized, politicized environment? I'm not fully sure, but I want to be completely surrendered, uh, regardless of external events, to God so that he can birth his son and his work in and through me. 
That's why Meister Eckhart wrote, to be empty of all created things is to be full of God. And to be full of created things is to be empty of God. In other words, you need to be empty so God can fill you. That's why I love praying the Our Father regularly, uh, especially when I'm unsure what to pray. And I've been praying the Our Father for our world. Uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I love that section. So we set goals, yes, but we have a, we've released our attachments to outcomes. We entrust that to Jesus, but yet we work towards them. And so I want to encourage you to surrender completely, even in your, in your, in your setting of goals. Because what happens is I, for years I set goals, but really it was my agenda. And it was more driving, not coming out of a place of surrender like Mary. Uh, that's why silence and stillness is so foundational and critical for all of us, so indispensable. In fact, let me invite you to uh, to one of our free resources. It's called uh, it's it's at emotionallyhealthy.org/dailyoffice, and it's a daily office guide that you can uh, run off and carry it around your Bible or download it into your phone. Uh, and it's just a great way to kind of slow you down. So you, morning, midday, and evening, it's got some devotionals and it's got some scripture there to get you started in practicing surrendering everything at intervals during a day because it's something we need to do throughout the day. So check out www.emotionallyhealthy.org slash daily office and it will help ground you, especially in silence before God. I, I love Habakkuk 2.20 when, you know, Habakkuk the prophet is, is is in Israel and he's looking at the Babylonian army that's about to invade the country and wipe it out. It, it doesn't make any sense to him. And he goes, you know, why God, why would you use this pagan nation to bring down our country? And then the Lord reveals himself to him and says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And God is working out a plan in history. Jesus is on the throne. And one of our most important works is to surrender everything uh, to him, and especially doing that in a posture of silence and stillness. But there's a second invitation related, uh, which I'll just touch on as I close off uh, part one here of our six invitations. The second invitation is this, embrace your limits. Embrace your limits. Scripture is very clear. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. In other words, we know a little bit of God's revelation and what's happening around us, but it is so limited when you think of the, the universe and its breadth and expanse. And I love when C.S. Lewis you know, wrote years, years ago that, that the first word we're going to say when we get to heaven is going to be, oh, O-H, oh, oh, that's what was going on. Oh, in other words, the, the tapestry will begin to make some sense to us. And uh, But we don't like limits. I mean, who wants them? Uh, I mean, nothing in the culture uh, embraces limits. Everything resists it. Uh, and it's actually this issue of limits touches on our rebellion against God. Yet limits offer so many gifts. And, and there are a lot of limits around us right now uh, in the midst of our environment. Uh, limits protect us so we don't hurt ourselves. They, they, lim- they, they protect other people. They actually protect the work of God. They keep us grounded. And most importantly, limits keep us humble. Uh, they break our self-will, and uh, it's, it's one of the ways God directs us if we'll listen to Him. And it's one of the primary ways we grow in wisdom. That's why this is a this is a season for the, for us as the Church of Jesus Christ, and for us as individuals to really mature in wisdom, and to meet God in ways that otherwise would have been impossible. 
When I say limits, do you realize we don't know what God is doing in terms of raising up and bringing down nations? Uh, in Isaiah, God, you know, God, the God of Israel is is portrayed as the one who raises up and brings down kings of the earth and nations. Uh, it says this, he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner they, do they take root in the ground, he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like the chaff, Isaiah 40. And Psalms picks up on that. That, that you can human authorities make plans, countries make plans, but God remains in control. That's why it says the Lord, Psalm 33, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purpose of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. That's why in scripture we see empires coming and going, big ones and small ones. Mesopotamia, Egypt, the nations in Canaan, Solomon, David, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. I mean, some lasted 70 years like the Babylonians. The Rome, Rome lasted 700 years, but no kingdom lasts forever. That's the key lesson here. All empires come to an end under the sovereign hand of God. But as Revelation 11 says, the kingdoms of this world has become the kingdoms of our, of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. That there, there's going to be a, a day, in fact, he refers to it in the past tense, even though it hasn't happened yet. That's how certain it is that every kingdom, every country, every nation, every power in this world will become the kingdom of Jesus, and he will reign forever and ever. That's how certain it is. Now, as you look right now from our, our, our limited place politically, uh, we can never be aligned to any one political party because our, our first loyalty is to Jesus. And no earthly political party can encompass the kingdom of God, our, our citizenship in heaven. And even our knowledge of history, not just of what God is doing is limited, even our knowledge of history is limited. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a political expert. I don't have a PhD in politics or international relations or in economics uh, you know, or in the Constitution uh, or the United States political system with its checks and balances. I've got some ideas, you know, but very, very limited. In fact, I remember as a, I was in college and uh, many years ago and uh I've been studying in England and uh, between the United States and England, most of my professors were, you know, were communists. And I was actually, I, I definitely was a pro-communist in, in college at the time. And I remember going to East Berlin, the time Germany was still divided East and West. And I'll never forget seeing for the first time, you know, the the, uh, the division of East and West Berlin and and then people that, you know, guard, guard uh, towers, uh, men with machine guns that, People couldn't leave East Berlin to go to West Berlin. And the clear distinction of Eastern Europe and Western Europe and, and the reality of the USSR. And I remember being in shock. And all of my thoughts and what I thought I knew about the world was just shattered. And uh, I just had no idea. I mean, and, and this, again, our knowledge is so limited in it, of, of, of history and the world. Uh, even our geography limits us. I mean, if you live in, I live in New York City here. Uh, if you if you were raised, for example, if you were raised in the Midwest and you're not around, if you're around mostly Anglo people, that that's a limit. If you're around all African Americans here in New York City, that's a limit. Or Latinos, or if you were came from Cuba or Nicaragua uh, and you fled the United States, you know, that's a perspective on the world. Or Eastern Europe, you fled that under communism, or you came out of the Korean War and you came to the United States. So in other words, all these are they're gifts, but they're also limits. So we're all, we all come to the table as we look at what's happening around us with, with such limits. That's why we must learn 
that biblical uh, quality that was described in the first 500 years of the church as discretion. Uh, it's a it's a, uh, a great character quality. I've heard people say often uh, in the last six to seven months, I, I, I couldn't help myself. I couldn't contain myself, Pete. I just had to speak and uh, end up saying things that were really dumb or, and putting words in God's mouth that he never really wanted to say. Uh, and discretion is about uh, going slow. Now, in, in the first 500 years of the church, this practice of listening to God intentionally was was referred to as a as a as a charism, actually, as a precious gift. It was understood that without discretion, uh, the church would be misguided and ruined. In fact, you couldn't be abbot of a, semin- of a of a monastery unless you were marked by discretion, because any spiritual leader who lacked discretion, the kind of wisdom that came from that, was considered dangerous. Uh, because they would say things that from God, who what, which God were, wasn't saying. They were putting words in God's mouth. And discretion, very simply, is this. It's the practice of waiting with prayerful expectation to see what will unfold. It has the humility and patience to discern when to leave things alone, knowing when our interference will only complicate things. I want to say that again because we need discretion, okay? It's it's the practice of waiting with prayerful expectation to see what will unfold. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God, but it has the humility and patience to discern when to leave things alone, knowing when our interference will only complicate things. And so it flows from a place, again, of silence and stillness. Discretion gives us, as the as Paul wrote, the keen ability to distinguish between good and evil spirits and enables us to wait and exercise self-control. It's probably one of the most important things we can do in these days is to uh, exercise discretion, patience. Again, back to silence. You know, it's interesting. We don't have, if we don't surrender completely and embrace our limits, we'll end up making the mistake that the prophets did during a time of Jeremiah, uh, where some of the false prophets ended up speaking too quickly. And God says, if I did not send these prophets, they've, they've run with a message, but I didn't speak to them, yet they've prophesied, the Lord says. But if they'd stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people. So I want to invite you to slow down, everybody. Okay, just slow down. And uh, let's surrender everything to God uh, daily, moment, moment by moment, as things are happening around us. That's his first invitation. And the second, to embrace our limits and say, I don't know. And I just, I don't know, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm waiting on the Lord and it may look foolish, but uh, we're exercising humility and patience. So again, let me invite you to go check out emotionallyhealthy.org slash daily office. It's a, it's a great resource. I've carried it my, around for years as I was getting my rhythm set of silence and stillness before God got a morning, midday, and evening component. You can print it out or download it to your phone, and it'll help ground you in silence before God. So next week, I'll do part two, and we'll dive into one of the secrets that Paul says will save our lives, and he bases his entire ministry on it, uh, regardless of what the outcome of an election uh, happens around us, even if it goes bad, you think, for you. So again, thank you, everybody. May the Lord bless you. Look forward to seeing you next week, and God bless you, and have a wonderful, wonderful day.